Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to the start of the Empire series. The Empire shows will cover some topics that you might find distressing, including genocides, racism, and war. Be aware, some listener discretion is advised, especially if you find topics like this difficult. Also, I'm sorry this episode is a bit late. I was on vacation, and in the run-up to vacation, I had to pull some long hours at work on my IT project. We are starting the Empire series with a couple of philosophical episodes. That means I will do what I was taught to do when I was trained as a philosopher, which is to start with some basic assumptions and then force you to think about whether they are justified. This is important because if you're going to understand the empire, the ideas that created it and sustained it, then we need to go deeper than killing is wrong, empires are evil, so the people that create them are evil. By doing a philosophical examination, we might well end up with similar conclusions, but they will be evidence-based and sustainable. Before we get going, I've got some listener reviews and new patrons to thank. First up, I'd like to welcome new patrons, respectable governess Sarah Kramer and lovable chimney sweep Paul B. And say a huge thank you to both of you for your support. I hope you enjoy the patrons' special episodes and other benefits. Next up, some listener reviews from Andrew Hewitt first, Five Star UK. A brilliant podcast, the world's a lonely place, and I feel like I can share my interest in history and this period with Chris during this excellent podcast. Thank you for taking the time to share this with us. Well, thank you, Andrew. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And if you want to meet some others in the history community and share the love of history, drop in on the Facebook group or follow on Twitter. There's lots of brilliant people in the Victorian history fan community. Next up, is another five-star review from Jason Rentiera. I love listening to this podcast while I'm walking my dog. This is a well-presented and well-researched podcast presented by someone who is obviously very interested in the subject matter. The podcast has ignited a reinterest in all things 19th century for me, plus such a soothing English voice. I can't wait for more episodes. Thank you, Jason. And from Jonesy 2, the amount of work and research that obviously goes into this podcast is amazing. Thank you for your hard work and dedication to the show. Thanks ever so much, Jonesy. I hope you keep on enjoying it. And lastly, from Penguin Socks 21. This is a bit of a long one, but I think it's a very interesting one. It raises a point we need to chat about. The Age of Victoria podcast is the most thrilling ride you'll take at 15 miles per hour. Host Chris Fernandez-Packham packs painstaking amounts of research into each episode, bringing a bygone age vividly back to life, with deep dives into labour rights, court politics and intrigue, technological and economic change, philosophy and art, warfare and colonisation. The Victorian period is expertly analysed and contextualised for a modern audience. I have been a lifelong history enthusiast, as a cast director at the annual Great Dickens Christmas Fair in San Francisco, this podcast is invaluable as an aid in developing an accurate picture 
the early to mid 19th century. I've recommended the AOV podcast as a resource to several of my fellow inhabitants of Dickensian London, including my best friend who portrays Queen V herself. If nothing else, the heart-wrenching first-person narratives of real people featured in each episode solidify this podcast as an essential tool in any Victorian reenactors kit. Though the age of Victoria podcast is paced somewhat slowly, the extended time spent allows the listener to fully inhabit the landscape Fernandez Packham paints. Other reviewers have touched on specific editing issues upon which the host continues to improve. I find his voice soothing and perfect for extended binge listening every few months to catch up on two or three full-length episodes at once. The only critique I have is his tendency to raise the pitch of his voice when narrating from Queen Victoria's letters or journals, or reading the correspondence of other women. This satirising effect can have the effect of making women sound more diminutive or ridiculous than I believe he intends. All in all, the Age of Victoria podcast is a dependable source of well-researched information on a much misunderstood period of history. I look forward to several more years of episodes as the rest of 19th century unfolds in Chris Fernandez Packham's capable hands. Thank you for the fantastic review. I'm especially thrilled that my show is helping the reenacting community, which is, I just think, one of the most wonderful things. If you do get a chance to visit a reenactment group, please take it. They put in so much work to bringing the past to life, whether it's the sealed knot in the UK with the English Civil War, or Queen Victoria fans and Dickens fans in America, to American Civil War reenactors, to Vikings and Anglo-Saxons. It's just a great community. So please, if you can support them, especially in the COVID times, get behind them somehow. The voice acting point was mentioned by Mary in the Facebook group too. So I decided to do a higher pitched voice for Victoria to make her stand out. And because it helps me put the intonations from her diary writing across to the audience. It is also so that Victoria and her voice are clear and distinct. It certainly wasn't to mock her or make her a figure of fun. Quite the opposite. It is my attempt to underline her importance. I admit I'm not a trained voice actor, as my readings of regional accents occasionally show. I just like to think that it will bring the people closer to us by separating my voice from the people's. But I will throw this open to the community. If any of you want to volunteer to be the voice of Queen Victoria for future quotes, please drop me an email. Okay, on with the show. We've talked a lot about Europe and wars and climate change and poverty and economics. We haven't touched on the empire. It is fundamental to the Victorian age, but it was incredibly complex. To cover the empire in one episode, or even five, is clearly impossible. Even the empire is just the same kind of shorthand as when we say the United Kingdom or the United States. Convenient labels that are actually pretty meaningless. It certainly wasn't like in Star Wars with an evil emperor at the top giving orders, 
and then hordes of unthinking drones in white armour following orders blindly whilst a heroic resistance fights for the good. Many people that fought against the British Empire were good, brave opponents, but many others were brutal, greedy and sometimes utterly inhumane in their own right. Even looking at a map of the Empire at a fixed point in time can be misleading. All that pink on the paper makes it look more unified and planned than was ever the reality. Some of the pink areas were deserts or mountains. No one lived there in a meaningful way. In areas like this, empire might mean a port and a railway or just an outpost on the road, despite the map showing hundreds of miles around it being pink. Other areas, like urban India, came under iron military and legal grip. Even in the Indian countryside, though, some parts of empire were nothing more than a British forestry commissioner or a local resident, plus the idea that somewhere above was the empire. Many historians will point out the divide between what was called the settler empire, or settler colonialism, and the conquered empire. The settler empire was conceptualised as the Australian, South African and Canadian areas where mass white immigration occurred into what Europeans considered unsettled lands that could be claimed. This empire consciously used terms like Anglo-Saxon, taming the frontier and building the white empire. Modern narratives on the British Empire tend to overwhelmingly focus on India. And in the 19th century, the British Empire in India was seen by the Victorians, at least some of them, as in many ways less laudable than the settler empire. Some historians have worried that the modern overfocus on events in India distorts a proper understanding of the wider Victorian Empire. Empire was different depending on who you were, where you were, where you were talking about and what your views were. For some British people, in some years the empire was just something that happened over there, a distant thing that barely seemed to touch them. For others, it was a living, vital part of the way Britain itself was being created. A Birmingham worker knew the raw materials he made his finished goods from often came from the empire. The goods he sweated, perhaps died, to produce were usually destined for somewhere in the empire. The empire acted as a vast economic system as well as an instrument of imperial expansion and control. To understand the empire, we must understand how sophisticated it was compared to many of the empires that had come before it. For those British people who went on to serve or rule the empire, depending on their class, well, again, their experience of it could be vastly different. A life as a lowly forestry commissioner somewhere in northern India could be remote and lonely, with few people and even fewer British people to even talk to. Months of silent isolation could be on the cards. A mixed-race clerk in one of the great Indian cities would have a very different view of the empire and the people who made it up, whether an Indian native, mixed-race Anglo-Indian, or brief contacts 
the highest upper class imperial administrators, the experience of the people on the ground shaped the empire and they in turn shaped it. This, in turn, helped reshape Britain. Nor was empire a purely British construction. Some of the imperial structures were based on pre-existing native institutions or inherited from earlier European conquests. Many native cultures resisted British rule. Others actively allied with the British to gain personal advantage or perhaps political power. The Victorian Empire had a colossal impact on the world. At its height, the empire ruled a quarter of the world. According to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the empire oversaw around 412 million inhabitants, or around 23% of the world's population at its height in 1913. By some measures, it was the largest that had ever existed. It was the empire that exported the Industrial Revolution and the railways worldwide, either directly through imperial rule or because other countries scrambled to keep up. The empire acted as a cultural bulldozer, whether for good or bad, or usually both. This led to immense cultural power. British fashions, practices, laws, sports and customs were spread widely and deeply. This traffic worked both ways, with cultural change in Britain driven by the experience of empire, from clothes to customs to art to architecture to literature and the military. There's a lot of baggage and assumptions around the empire, and I'm going to push us, really think about them, so we can understand more of what happened at the time. Without jumping to pre-existing conclusions, this means we will be a bit more philosophical in this episode and probably the next one. We are going to start the series off focusing on the settler empire, especially in the Australias. I'm using the Australias to mean the various lands in what we today call Australia and Tasmania. In the Victorian era, especially the early era, Australia was a reference to the landmass, not a political entity or nation, although some imperial administrators and explorers were starting to think of it that way. I'm also going to remind you that there have been hundreds of empires throughout history. Yuval Noah Harari, in his book Sapiens, A History of Mankind, says that we should remember empires, usually in the form of absolutist divine monarchies, were almost the most common form of government in human history, whilst modern liberal democracy is already looking shaky after a mere century or two. That's perhaps debatable, but empires are certainly extremely common. The British Empire wasn't the first or the last, and in some ways is notorious not just due to its size, but because it is so recent. When we look at empire, we can easily condemn the British for numerous wars and killings because the grandchildren of the victims are still here to remind us. But somehow, the Romans are regarded as cool, despite ethnically cleansing the entire France or wiping out perhaps a 100,000 people in Carthage deliberately. And this is mainly 
because of the sheer length of time that has passed. Empires and massacres certainly weren't invented by the Europeans either. The Yangzhou massacre of 760 CE saw thousands of perceived foreigners murdered by rebels who were trying to overthrow the Tang dynasty. The Aztecs are almost a poster child empire for extreme violence by a sophisticated non-European empire. You can even go back into prehistory and look at the evidence showing massacres. Mankind seems an incredibly warlike species. It appears from some evidence that there was a form of warfare at Nataruk in Africa 10,000 years ago, involving a hunter-gatherer tribe resulting in a large massacre in terms of the percentage of the population rather than the absolute numbers. Historians like John Keegan or Victor Davis Hanson will say that humans seem to have an innate tendency to violence, war and killing. Europeans just had a period where they were very good at doing it over long distances. Just saying that can be contentious since some anthropologists don't like the suggestion of violent warfare as it can lead to the blaming of indigenous peoples for their later conquest. It also challenges the notion that conflict is rooted in competition over resources by more advanced societies. If hunter-gatherers in low-density, high-food areas still engaged in mass killing, that says something about our innate evolutionary behaviours. That has striking implications. The narrative of more technologically primitive peoples being more gentle and corrupted by the more ruthless settled civilizations is undermined if humans are like chimpanzees and predisposed towards conflict and killing. The arguments this can cause in academic circles are immense. There's intense debate about conflict in the Americas and Australia's before European contact. There is a lot of good evidence there was violence within tribes, as you would expect, even in a legalistic society with high levels of law, policing and surveillance. We can't eliminate fights or murder, but there's a lot of evidence of intertribal warfare and slavery. The numbers of people killed is usually smaller in absolute terms, there are still examples of extreme violence. It means there was no Garden of Eden inhabited by completely innocent people. Let's look at the fundamental philosophical question that seems to underlie all of this. Is human life important? Is it sacred? That's a big question. The easy, lazy and unexamined answer is yes, of course. Why? If you are religious, you can point to a religious basis, like a commandment. But that often comes with exemptions. Many religions encourage the killing of non-believers or lord examples of human sacrifice. Besides, if a thing is only wrong because God says so, what happens if he changes his mind? Do the things he has previously called evil suddenly become good? In the Old Testament of the Bible, Abraham is told to sacrifice his own son. He is willing to do so. And he and the child are only spared by divine intervention once God is sure 
Abraham is going to do as asked and murder his own child. Yet in another part of the Bible, the book of Judges, Zepetha offers a sacrifice of the first thing that comes out of his house door if God gives him victory in battle. God, showing a lot of partisanship, gives him the victory. When he returns home, he is greeted by his daughter, but keeps his vow. There's no divine intervention this time, and she is murdered as a sacrificial offering. That's pretty flexible morality God is displaying, and not a great basis for an objective moral system. The Old Testament God is often aggressive and changes his mind on a whim, along with being comfortable with supporting one side or another in extremely violent wars. That's hugely problematic for the major Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam, which all share the same Old Testament book. If you aren't religious, you can have even more difficulties. You don't have to deal with the often inherently contradictory moral practice outlined in ancient texts. Instead, you have to grapple with creating a value system that can't appeal to an objective standard. It means all moral ends turn into just claims of values. This makes morality highly relative and culture-specific. It can change from person to person and culture to culture. Even getting a common definition of what is life is problematic and it flares up at the heart of the abortion debate, for example. If I sat you down opposite me in a pub and asked you to outline exactly why human life is important and sacred with evidence in a consistent intellectual framework, you might find it tricky. We inherently want to say so, but it's clear that we all give different lives different values. You could say life is valuable because people have a right to live and decide their own destinies. People then learn and contribute to society and add value to everyone's lives. What if I push you and say prove a right to life exists? You can't point to a law of physics or science to prove it. You might feel a bit frustrated and say, look, people have value. They contribute in amazing ways, our shared humanity. I could push back by saying, well, what about the people who don't contribute? Are you saying people's lives are only valuable if they contribute something you like and the right to life is predicated on the providing value? Does that mean only fully mentally and physically able people have a right to life? Are you excluding people who are alcoholics and drug addicts? If they are a drain on society, does that mean they don't get a right to life? At this point, you would probably be resisting the urge to pour a pint on my head, but you might sigh and say, look, we are all unique and valuable, and we treat everyone equally, which is why we have laws to help include people who are in difficulties, so they have the same rights as us. If I really wanted to test your patience, I'd say, so you want a universal right to life recognised in law, even if you can't justify it scientifically, and that right is based on people having an innate value or right to preserve their life even if they are not making a positive contribution. You probably nod frantically and hope that you can make an excuse to slip off to the bar at this point. Bad luck. I would ask, well, if this is a right and innate, then it is a 
natural right that can't be taken away. You nod and say, yeah, that's it, that'll do. And then I ask, what about soldiers or the police or the state? They kill people. You might groan and say, well, that's different. Ah, I reply, you mean everyone has the natural right to life, except sometimes when they don't. You probably narrow your eyes and say, well, you can't expect the police not to shoot someone in self-defence, and you can hardly fight a war without killing someone. As Rimmer said in Red Dwarf, there are always casualties in war, otherwise it would just be a nasty argument with lots of pushing and shoving. I would nod and reply, so it's okay to kill people sometimes, even if they have an absolute right to life. You would nod cautiously. And I'd then ask you, well, how do you choose who gets to have their innate right to life ignored? You glare at the ceiling, perhaps, and then say, I don't know, you just use some common sense. Like really bad criminals or self-defence, if someone is terminally ill. Oh, I reply, you didn't realise you wanted to kill off sick people. You would shake your head and say, no, I mean if they are suffering and ill and want to end it with dignity. Ah. I reply, what about someone who is paraplegic? Should they be able to ask to be killed? I'm not sure, you reply. Maybe it depends on how they feel about it. I nod and then ask, well, what if the brakes fail on a train and is heading towards a dead end and hitting it will kill everyone on board? But if you pull the track change lever, it will go on to a different track. It has an engineer working on it, so the train only kills him. Is that okay? Or should you do nothing and let the 20 people on the train die? What if those 20 people are criminals being transported to a high-security prison whilst the engineer is a loving, hard-working single father? Are you comfortable making that choice? Does your value system that you've worked out let you find the right moral answer for that choice? Is it okay for the state to kill people in a war but not execute criminals? That appears inconsistent. Why is it okay to kill people in a war and be pro-euthanasia in cases of the terminally ill, but then perhaps say you are against abortion or the other way round? You might condemn the death penalty and killing people during a war, but be fine with abortion because how you define life is different from how other people have defined it. And the value you have placed upon personal freedom is different to the value they are placing on someone else's freedom. Inconsistencies about how human life is valued, whose life is valued, are common. Issues of personal freedom frequently conflict with other people's views on the right of people to live their own lives. You can see some basic human morals and impulses in conflict in here. Answers to the questions I pose in that fictitious conversation can differ wildly. Where you draw your lines can rapidly change. Once the absolute rules are erased, it is a very rare person has an absolute hard line against ever taking a human life for any reason, and they often can't deal with no-win situations. What if you have that hard line absolutist stance, and you have to deal with a home invasion by a dangerous criminal who is prepared to kill anyone gets in the way. Studying philosophy soon teaches you that consistency is usually more trouble than it's worth. A lot of moral philosophy 
requires a discussion of the extent of free will and freedom of action. How moral or immoral is an action when it is compelled by the circumstances around it? If everyone you know is a tribal raider from the steppes who kills Chinese farmers and steals from Chinese merchants, honestly, how free are you to choose a different life? Respect for the law is often deemed a moral good, but the law itself can be morally evil. Yet disobeying that law could require further immoral acts. Supposing you were a civil servant in Nazi Germany, you decided you couldn't follow the registration laws because they are immoral. You don't want to help the regime making the laws. You decide to break the law and burn down the records building. This saves thousands of people from being identified and taken to a camp. Yet perhaps other people die in the fire. Suddenly, you are a long way down the complex calculations of what exactly the greater good is. And this is all before you introduce economics, when you have to ask, what is the value of human life? That's not a trivial question. Courts have to assess the value of life when they are looking at the monetary damages in cases where someone has died. Doctors have to look at whose life is more valuable when treatment options are limited and resources are scarce. Do you spend time, money and the doctor's critically limited time on a patient who will be dead of old age and cancer in a year instead of spending it, say, on a newborn baby? Should society tax people more to pay for medical care or police at the cost, say, of better public transportation that would reduce emissions and improve public health by preventing respiratory and cardiac disease? These dilemmas are timeless and have existed in some form throughout history. If you were, say, the ruler of an empire and you could save the lives of millions of your own citizens by invading another territory and seizing their land for food, were you morally obligated to do it? If your own people are starving and that territory is badly run and not producing maximum agricultural returns and it supports a small population, then by taking it over, you could turn it into a breadbasket that might potentially save millions of the lives of your own citizens. If you refuse and say it is immoral to take land from other people and kill them, how do you react as your own people start dying and protesters turn up outside your office holding dead children and asking why you didn't do something? Why was the life of a stranger in another country worth more than their child's? Don't think that things like this haven't happened in history. There's also probably the uncomfortable thought in your mind, if you can't solve this problem, maybe the Praetorian Guard will get rid of you and find someone who will. And then you hit the classic philosophy first-year undergraduates problem. What if you are going to save six people by sacrificing one person, but then the one person turns out to be an Einstein who could cure cancer? It is virtually impossible to live a life that doesn't in some way hurt or kill other people at some point. For instance, today, if you buy a pair of cheap trainers, they are made in a sweatshop somewhere that uses slave labour. You throw away a computer. It is sent to a developing country and left on a scrap heap with children scavenging for parts in the toxic waste. The vegetarian meal you eat includes soy or palm olive 
from plantations that cut down the rainforest, turbocharging climate change, which in turn kills people. The cocaine, snorted at fashionable parties in London, is paid for in blood along the supply chain. It destroys Latin American countries and causes corruption worldwide. Lawyers in America help money laundering from corrupt Russian mafia, enriching US banks' capital reserves and boosting the US economy and strengthening the dollar. Moral certainty is always a lot easier at a distance, especially when simplicity and hindsight are thrown in. This was a fundamental problem of empires. Many people benefiting from some of the terrible acts were often a long way from them and had a very different point of view. It gets even harder if we look at one of the fundamental values of modern liberal democracies, the right to individual liberty. This tenant says you are free to make your own choices and live your life any way you want, provided your actions don't infringe the freedom of others. Yet in practice, modern societies routinely expect and even demand people interfere in other people's lives. A 14-year-old with a meth addiction will be forced into the medical system. A person living in a homeowner's association area will suddenly find those cute garden gnomes they want for the front yard will generate a lot of interference with their lives. Tax offices are notorious for interfering in people's lives, as are insurance companies. Crossings interfere with your walk, and when councils take away sidewalks and pavements, they force you to drive rather than walk, damaging your health and the planet. Governments interfere with individual freedom by forcing drivers to wear seatbelts or to drive cars that meet emissions standards. Yet these are necessary measures. Vaccines are the most effective method of controlling many infectious diseases, yet they often require the state to force consent of the people who refuse to accept them on spurious, scientifically illiterate grounds for the good of the wider community. The value of freedom becomes a complex series of debates and trade-offs about where boundaries really lie. Societies and people constantly force their will onto others. We just don't like to think of it that way. In 17th, 18th and 19th century Europe, the concept of it being wrong to interfere in another culture and respecting it was not a common one in the first place. If you look at it at even an individual level, many Victorians would have said it was perfectly okay to tell someone else how to live their life and judge them for how they did. That runs contrary to our modern view of individual human rights and the freedom to live life as you choose. That was not a sentiment that was particularly common in Victorian times. People expected to judge others and be judged by the community. There was also the view that if someone wasn't seen to be living life in a way the Victorian community approved of, there was a moral duty for the community to tell them to change their life. Poor Victorians in the working class routinely received lectures on sexual abstinence and temperance from visiting charity workers, and frankly that attitude is common today too. As for the right to life, that was just as tricky as today. Victorians knew life was fragile. Most people in the world lived in extreme poverty, even in the richer nations. 
disease could strike without warning. Childbirth was incredibly dangerous. Huge numbers of people around the world died due to injuries at work. Telling a working class Victorian that everyone had a precious life that had to be treasured might have seemed insane when they looked around them and watched their fellows dropping like flies. Victorian England and Wales at one point had a life expectancy at birth of just 40 years and child mortality was enormous. The statement, all life is valuable, would just not have made sense. Most people can't get into the detailed analysis of these kind of issues when making most of their decisions. Complex moral rules and frameworks are just too much for every decision we have to make. So people turn to shortcuts called heuristics. Quote Alice Newark, quote, Given the sheer number of decisions the average person makes on any given day, the brain's use of shortcuts to help assess different choices makes perfect sense. It would be a waste of time and energy if someone had to do an exhaustive cost-benefit analysis to decide which brand of laundry detergent to buy or which kind of pizza to order. As a result, people use a number of mental shortcuts or heuristics to help make decisions which provide general rules of thumb for decision-making. However, the same glossing over of factors that makes heuristic a convenient and quick solution for many smaller issues means that they actually hinder the making of decisions about more complicated issues. Heuristics are simplifications, and while simplifications use fewer cognitive resources, they also, well, simplify, end quote. These mental shortcuts mean humans are generally pretty terrible at reasoning, unless done using a scientific framework of some kind. And you can begin to imagine the enormous impact this can have on cross-cultural decision-making, especially of the kind that empires are involved with. Even the human visual system uses heuristics, which is why we fall for optical illusions so easily. We are especially prone to what is called anchoring bias, where we base our views on values based on a previous value. To borrow an example from Dr. Lindy Sapperdin, if you came from a family that spent £50 on jeans growing up, your starting view for jeans will be that they should cost around £50. When you find a pair of jeans for £39.99, that seems like a bargain and validates your view. Suppose you have a daughter. She doesn't like supermarket own brand jeans. She went shopping with a friend who bought a pair of jeans for £180. She wants those jeans. When the two of you are going shopping together, you find the pair she wants on sale at £149. She is thrilled and says, wow, I love those and they are so cheap. Your response is, what, are you crazy? They cost a fortune. Who pays that much for jeans? Both of you then look sulkily around the shop. You pick pairs that are priced much less than the 149 She picks ones near or over that price. You argue because you both have got different anchor figures in your mind. This effect is often linked to other cognitive issues around overconfidence and can be very dependent on culture. Western individualistic cultures tend to over-rely on analytics 
and overestimate their own intelligence and abilities to the point that huge numbers of the population consider themselves above average. In Asian cultures, cultural bias tilts more towards holistic consideration of context and leans towards consensus. That avoids some of the risks of overconfidence and anchoring bias, but increases the risk of lack of individual initiative and failure to capitalise on the intelligence of individuals or information generated at individual levels. Why does all this matter? Well, when cultures meet each other, it matters a lot. As I've shown, human decision-making is often deeply flawed and driven more by individual biases than people realise. When someone from culture A visits culture B, they have to judge it against their own culture, since that is their only frame of reference. Yet the way they perform the judgement is frequently messy and based on these heuristics. If the heuristic is a simple rule like it is important to be punctual, then a German and a Spaniard will probably suffer a minor cultural misunderstanding, but no real harm. If the cultural heuristic is people who disrespect Allah should be put to death, then a visitor from another culture had better understand very quickly what is and is not considered respectful. And that's before you even get into things like individual tendencies towards conservatism or liberalism and other world views. Confirmation bias blends into this dangerous stew where information that confirms your worldview is accepted. What doesn't is ignored or disparaged. Cognitive biases and the cultural norms of the Victorians were what they took with them. It was their life experience and they couldn't avoid it any more than the cultures that met them could simply dispatch with their own cognitive biases or cultural norms. To the Victorians then, if life wasn't even precious in their own society, why should they think it was precious anywhere else on earth? Travelling to other countries seemed to show the same thing. People lived short, hard lives and often died in huge numbers. On top of this, there was the mental distancing societies did to turn members of other societies from people with thoughts, feelings and a distinct culture into an inferior other. If you follow this line of reasoning far enough, you can even persuade yourself you are actually doing a good thing when you're doing some very bad ones. This mental distancing is so useful as a tool for humans, especially in smaller societies. Who is and isn't a member of the tribe, who benefits from the labour of the tribe, could be crucial in survival in harsh environments. But it's dangerous. People who commit crimes, for instance, become criminals and are always criminals suddenly. The label stays as if being a criminal was an intrinsic characteristic, like becoming blind or having red hair. That in turn leads to harsh sentences. You treat sick people with help and care. But if your society starts seeing the criminal as less than human, well, you can see where that can get to fairly quickly. Individuals are often quick to attribute their own successes to their own actions and their failures to things beyond their control. 
yet look at other people and attribute their success to structural factors and their failures to themselves individually. You can blame crime on individual actions alone and not have to worry about whether there are structural or economic problems. It isn't just limited to criminals. You can get a society to use this process on plenty of groups. Depending on your political problem, blame someone. Blame the Jews, or the Gypsies, or the Communists, or the Capitalists, or the Radicals, or the big corporations, or the students, or black people, or women, or immigrants, or men, or the patriarchy. Anything that you as a cynical ruler can point to and say, see, they are the real problem. If you just focus on them, get them out of the way, I can create the better world you want. Just give me the power. It gets even easier if the group you choose to single out has some unpleasant or difficult aspects. It's easy to get people to defend women's rights when they are under attack, but it is harder to get people out on the streets to protect the rights of criminals and the unemployed. What about when your society really doesn't like the values of the minority that's under attack from the mainstream? Like, say, hardline Islamists' freedom of speech when it's under attack in a democracy. You have to be a pretty committed Voltairian to come out and say, free speech no matter what, and if they call for a caliphate and the beheadings of women who have sex before marriage, that's their right. It is perfectly possible for a minority group to be persecuted by a majority, yet be pretty hateful in themselves. It can also work the other way round. Some minority groups take over a society and control it, excluding the ethnic majority from power. I guarantee you that newspaper comment sections and student debate societies will constantly argue about who or what gets to be mainstream in a culture and how to treat people who don't fit easily into mainstream culture. This othering isn't unique to the British Empire. You can look back in history and find plenty of examples of humans who don't want to see other humans as real people. One example that stuck with me is the photo of the Turkish official in the Armenian Genocide. He's standing, a well-dressed, well-fed man, in a group of kneeling people who have been starving for so long they look like walking skeletons. In his hand, raised above his head to taunt them, is a loaf of bread. Then there's the photo that has to be one of the most striking and awful in human history, called the last Jew in Vinitsa, taken in 1941. In it, there's a crowd of well-dressed Nazi soldiers standing in the background on some rubble. In the front centre is a tall, well-built Nazi man. He's holding a pistol to the head of a man in a suit and tie who's kneeling in front of him. In front of them both is the pit full of bodies, people that have been murdered by the Nazis. The kneeling man has been positioned so that when he is shot, he will fall into the pit, saving the killers the trouble of lifting his body. You have to look into the eyes of the man about to die. What I find fascinating and repellent about this is not just the subject matter itself, it's why we know about it. These Nazis were part of the infamous Einstadtgruppen D during the massacre of 28,000 Ukrainian Jews. We know about the photo 
because a Nazi soldier liked it enough to keep it, write the title on the back and put it in a photo album. Just pause and think what that means. The sheer horror captured in a photo that was supposed to be looked back on, perhaps with pride or fondness. If you get the chance, have a look at the photo. There's a reason why the phrase never again is so important. Now imagine how many times in human history you could have taken pictures like these in nearly every country on earth. See, that's one of the things that gets lost when we look at the British Empire and say, wow, it killed a lot of people. We forget how many other empires and kingdoms have done similar things. They don't resonate as much because we can't look in the eyes of the victims in photographs. Genghis Khan was responsible for the deaths of millions and millions of people. Today in the West, you will find military history enthusiasts who forget about the bodies in their excitement to talk about horse archery. And in Mongolia, there is a statue to the Great Khan that is 135 feet tall and weighs over 250 tonnes. To the Mongolian people, he's the hero who united the steppe tribes, founded an enormous empire, and reopened the Silk Road between East and West. How should we feel seeing a statue of someone who created an empire that killed 40 million people? To the Mongols, he's a hero, the founding father of the nation. He believed in religious tolerance, equality before the law, the outlawing of slavery, prohibition of torture. Was that worth the 40 million dead? Should his statue be pulled down? How do you think the Mongols would feel about that today? But then on the other side of the coin, that outlawing of slavery only applied to the Mongols because, humans being what they are, they tend to be selective about who gets to enjoy the ruling privileges. Many Chinese rulers viewed China as the perfect heavenly kingdom at the centre of the world and those outside it as non-human. None of this is to excuse the bad parts of the British Empire or the terrible things it sometimes did, but to remind ourselves as humans that these things are not unique to the British Empire or the West. Empires bring political benefits that seem unpalatable in the rich modern West, floating on oil and technology. In the pre-oil age, empires often provided a degree of stability and protection in areas where nation-states didn't exist, and inter-ethnic conflict could be endemic. It is easy to criticise rigid imperial governance, but it is easy to overlook that in some areas, the absence of a strong state can lift the lid on ethnic tensions that spark up into generational ethnic conflicts, like the ongoing instability in the Balkans as the Ottoman Empire collapsed, then the post World War II Soviet Empire also withdrew from the area. Serbs, Muslims, Croats and many more got involved in some of the worst failed state conflicts and genocides since World War II. Even today, the scars run deep. Freedom is all well and good until it turns to blood feuds, ethnic cleansing and gangs of rival warlords looting and extorting. Somalia is one key example, but history is full of examples of other conflicts that can rage in the absence of states and empires. If you were in one of those outlying lawless areas, 
Do you think welcoming the great Khan would have been something you'd do or dread? After all, the Mongols will bring law and stability. But if you refuse, your tribe might be wiped out. And even if you submit, you won't get a chance to make your own decisions anymore. The British Empire usually set up organisational structures that were always going to be dehumanising to people outside the power structure. Empires are designed to benefit the people ruling them. They are not benevolent forms of representative government. Decisions about the policies in the Australias were a mix of government goals, military objectives and the British criminal justice system thousands of miles away from the new colonies and then by governors, military officers and civilian settlers. Then you factor in the vast gulf in cultural worldviews we've just talked about and this othering is an inevitable disaster waiting to happen. It is easy to say the racist British wanted to replace the indigenous Aboriginals with white settlers. That's true at a very high level, but it doesn't help us understand what actually happened, to whom and why. A female convict, for instance, would probably not have thought of herself as a racially superior colonist seeking to found a white dominion in Australia. She didn't get to choose to go. She didn't even get to choose the criminal laws that ended up sending her there. In fact, as a poor woman in 1838, she had zero say in even electing the people who made those laws. The captain of the transport ship was just that, a ship's captain. He was paid to take the ship to a designated destination with a set cargo, which included convicts. Issues of land ownership or indigenous rights would probably never have entered his head beyond perhaps a vague thought labelled the natives. British policy also wanted to lessen what was seen as a surplus population of hungry people at home by seizing overseas land. Many of those set up overseas really did find a hugely improved diet and wrote to relatives at home about how good the food was and how starvation was a distant memory so they should come and join the settlers. Think about that. When you look at it like that, you can see how the British policy could seem to policymakers to be good and humane. It allowed people who were hungry to get food and land they could never hope to have in Britain, and at the same time safeguarded national security by preventing the French from doing the same. They believed, like people like Thomas Malthus, had mathematically proved that population growth was outstripping food supplies. The dreadful year without summer and the discontent and hard winters of the 1820s and 30s had seen the ultimate proof of this. If they didn't seek new lands and food sources outside Europe, then they would be responsible for millions of deaths from starvation. Perhaps not doing it seemed irresponsible to policymakers. That's assuming the decisions were conscious policy. Britain was in many ways a free country, especially when compared to most at the time. If a British person wanted to leave their terrible factory job, buy a cheap ticket on a ship to get to Australia, then buy some land, well, it was their life. They could go and try to be fed in New South Wales. Contact with the indigenous peoples sometimes seemed to reinforce this view. The lower density, low agricultural societies, pastoral societies in Australia 
seem to be almost criminally wasting the precious resource of productive land. Inconvenient facts were swiftly airbrushed aside. The view that civilised Europeans were taking an empty land that hadn't been utilised by the native peoples, therefore inevitably had to lead to a racist white superiority complex. Racism had to become part of colonial expansion. The flip side of any claim to white racial superiority had to be a claim that the indigenous population were inferior. You can't claim to be superior after all if you have nothing to be superior to. That is a fairly striking pattern to human history as well. Any culture that aspired to dominance, for whatever reason, would probably eventually adopt some form of claim of either racial superiority or cultural superiority. Good examples of the former claim are the Mongolian, Japanese or Chinese civilizations, whilst the Romans were an example of the latter, since they were unconcerned over skin colour or ethnicity, but asserted aggressive cultural and legal dominance over peoples outside the empire and those assimilated into it. This form of cultural imperialism could become linked to religion, whether Christian, Confucianism or Buddhist, or just claims about the general culture. Cultural replacement by newcomers to a territory follows a strikingly similar pattern historically, from the Romans to the Mongols to the Chinese to the Western Atlantic empires to the Aztecs to the American Inward Empire and many others. The Anu people in Japan were conquered by the Japanese in the 9th century. They sometimes revolted against their Japanese shogunate overlords, only to be brutally put down. By 1800, the shogunate took direct control of Hokkaido, and the Anu population lunged from 80,000 to around 15,000 in 1868. The Japanese sold Anu men into indentured servitude, forced Anu women to marry Japanese men. They were declared as foreign aboriginals so that they couldn't claim indigenous rights, then simply declared Japanese so that they and their culture would be buried. They would not be recognised as an indigenous group until 2006. China has a long history of repression of territories it conquers and assimilation of people into Chinese culture, a pattern continued today in Tibet. When stepping away from the abstract philosophy, the day-to-day impact of the British Empire was enormous. Whatever the aims and goals of the Victorian British, whether benevolent, uncaring or actively hostile, depending on the circumstances and people, the consequences for pre-colonial Aboriginal society in the Australias were going to be immense and terrible. Hundreds of thousands of convicts and settlers travelled from Victorian Britain to what would become one of the great pillars of the empire. Not all of white Victorian Australia was founded by convicts, though. Nor was it all forced migration due to hunger, gold rushes and a sense of opportunity also fueled massive emigration from across Europe to Australia. The immigrants brought with them Victorian British culture and ideals and then the cultural ideas of Europe. They would be linked to the empire by ships, then steamships and telegraphs. Farms and railways sprung up 
and international trade seemed to blossom. A British policymaker in 1803, who could peer into the future, might have felt vindicated. After all, an empty continent was being transformed into one of the most productive parts of the empire. If he was especially racist, which wouldn't be unlikely for the period, he might have felt that it was superior to the Anglo-Indian Empire as it was created by mainly white labour. He would be wrong. Of course, the land wasn't empty and he would be ignoring the colossal displacement, forced labour and genocides against the indigenous peoples. Tasmania suffered a particularly bad genocide against its indigenous people. We will look at the events of the process of war, genocide and colonisation in more detail next time as we continue our episodes on the empire and ask the simple but controversial question, who has the right to the land? Okay, thank you for listening today. I know it's been a long one and it's been a bit of a philosophical journey, but I hope it's opened your eyes to the huge number of issues around the empire to allow you to think about some of the themes underlying it and give the decisions and actions of the people a bit more context. Okay, I'll try and get out a mini-sode soon and do get in touch if you have any thoughts about today's episode and I'll speak to you next time. Take care and bye for now.